Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 44th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday, the 16th of January, 2014, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. After a short break for the Christmas and the obligatory drying out period, the show is now back on the road. The very generous sponsors of this week's show are Alex S and the repeat sponsor, Paul H. Thanking you, gentlemen. You too can become cool and hip like Alex and Paul by clicking on that there donate button on the podcast website. And of course, you can also follow the show on Twitter or on Facebook. This week, our guest is Connor McCabe. Connor is a research fellow in the School of Social Justice in University College Dublin and has just released the second edition of his book, Sins of the Father, Tracing the Decisions that Shaped the Irish Economy. The book is a brilliant class analysis of the Irish economy since the origins of the state and seeks to give a deep, systemic structural analysis to the causes of the crisis and how to understand why things panned out the way they did. We discuss the garden cities of Ebenezer Howard, Irish economic policy and the British Empire, the rise of land speculation in Ireland, an extravagantly pointless Irish hotel, and the world's largest property company called NAMA, which owns all the worthless, toxic commercial property in Ireland. NAMA, in case you haven't heard of it before, is the proud property of those most unfortunate of creatures, the Irish taxpayer. So, Connor, how did you get the idea to write a book on such a broad topic as the economic history of the Irish economy? It came out of the kind of crisis of 2008 and by 2009 was that um, trying to make sense of all of that. I needed to delve into the past of Ireland. One of the things about looking at kind of social forces or deep social forces is is that what history gives us, it, it gives us this canvas that allows us to observe deep social forces in motion. And there's very few other kind of disciplines that really give us that kind of insight. It, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the Webers and the Marxists and, and, and so forth always brought in a historical analysis into their kind of conceptual frameworks is that that's the canvas that's that's kind of missing. And that idea of in Ireland in, in late September 2008, we had a a class basically kind of bail itself out and the power to do that doesn't happen overnight. So in order to try and get a sense of where does our power come from, how does it operate, what are its mechanisms, it needed a historical analysis and I didn't really find much out there that kind of gave that analysis. So I just thought, well, feck it, I'm going to have to write it now myself. It was daunting, but I did think it was it was important. Now, Having said that, I draw from a lot of other people. I draw from the kind of Ray Crotties of this world. And so, I mean, there's a lot of secondary 
source kind of material there as well. Also kind of primary, you know, source material as well. But stuff had been written, but I didn't think it had been put together in a in a coherent kind of narrative. And as an historian, that's my job. So that was basically just the whole idea of it, was to try and make sense of the power relations, the class power relations that were playing out in, in Ireland in real time in like 2008 and 2009 and like 2010 and trying to see where where did it come from what's their basis how did they reproduce themselves and that was really it really this was not a kind of a shallow look at showing which corrupt actors were involved or which kind of small little things happened but a more deep structural look at the dna of the irish economy that's really it. In fact, it, it, it's a good way of actually putting it. I mean, like it was kind of looking at the skull beneath the skin. You know, it's the bones of the whole thing. And actually, I mean, I do deal with people in it, but very rarely. And, and it's not because, you know, people are not important in historical analysis. But I think there's a danger in being kind of personality led. Now, personalities are important. But if you're looking at how something can reproduce itself intergenerationally, that cannot be based on the personalities. That has to be something that's kind of structural. That's about, you know, how, how, how does power reproduce itself? And so you're looking at kind of, you know, at those kind of mechanisms, you know, what's the apparatus that allows power to be powerful, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that was really what I was kind of really engaged with. There's very little, like on Hohi, shall we say, or even kind of Sean Lamas, not because they, they aren't important, but that, I see them as playing a particular role in an overarching apparatus, shall we say, a, one that has a, a, a class bias. I mean, if there's a conceptual framework which, which runs through the book, the one which informs it is that idea of an economic class analysis and actually bringing that to Irish history. You also mention how we hear some of the things like how owning a house in Ireland is in our DNA because of what people went through during the time the British were in power with evictions and yeah. landlords and all this type of thing. Yeah. But you, you show that this kind of cultural meme is just nowhere reflected in actual hard data. I mean, it's here now. I mean, like, let's get this straight. Is that this is definitely part of the Irish culture now. But it took decades for it, for it to happen. And there were a lot of like two steps forward and like one step back in, in terms of trying to convince the urban Irish to actually buy a house first because it was it was unaffordable houses are bloody expensive and if and if you've got a, an economy that is basically a a low-wage casual labor based how do you buy a house i mean this was this was a fantasy but over decades there was a real kind of push for that you know and it and it took time it, the real kind of tipping point is in 1966 with the kind of privatization of urban social housing this happens of course in the uk in like 79 but ireland as in many cases, when it comes to right-wing economic policies, Ireland is a bit of a world leader. And Ireland starts to privatise social housing 12, 13 years prior to it happening in the UK. And that's the real spike. That's when housing in Ireland really starts going over, well, home ownership goes over your 60 to 64%. It starts to rise when that social housing, that public housing, is sold on to the tenants. Now, as it is, home ownership in Ireland as a percentage of housing has been dropping steadily since 1991. It fell during the so-called Celtic Tiger years. And at the moment, it, it stands at 69%, which puts it as average in an EU kind of context and slightly higher than in the US. It's about on the par with the kind of UK. So a lot of the kind of narratives around housing 
this is happening outside of Ireland as well. I mean, these narratives are happening in Spain, in Greece, in, in like Portugal. There's a push towards a financial kind of speculation via housing in the 1970s and the 1980s. And Ireland is most certainly part of that wave. But this idea that, that well, first of all, I've, I have to, to like see how culture is transmitted through DNA. That, that is a fascinating idea in, its, in itself. How these ideas are reproduced are through state apparatus. And that's where you see it. That's where you see the state subsidising a private housing, you know, really pushing this kind of narrative. That's where you see it happening, and that's why it's there. It's pretty staggering to think that house ownership in Ireland dropped during the boom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it's only by two four percent, but it did fall as a percentage of overall households in the state. Now, households did rise, but I mean, even even like in in, in the last census in in, in like twenty eleven, it was sixty nine percent. It's at its lowest level since 1971-72. And as I said, it's average in terms of the Eurozone. I mean, in the former Eastern Bloc countries, um, it goes up to 95% for the very same reason as why home ownership in Ireland is so high. is because that social public housing was privatised. Now, being in the former Eastern Bloc countries, there was more social housing to privatise. But that's the play. That's the bump. It happens here from the 60s onwards. It happens in Eastern Europe from the 1990s onwards. But for roughly for the same reason, it's a public asset that's been sold on. And that's what's causing the real kind of rise. So to set the scene, I suppose, for the Irish economy, we should talk a bit about the state of affairs when Ireland won independence from the British Empire. What was the political and economic scene like at that time? Ireland was and remained for a long time afterwards uh, fully integrated into the UK economy. Ireland... I'll say Ireland here as a shorthand for the, the kind of Southern Irish state. But the Southern Irish state, it breaks politically from Westminster, but does not break economically from the city of London, and most certainly not from the UK economy itself. Ireland's role in that, in that economy is to provide more or less kind of raw materials for the factories of the cities of, of England. I mean, Ireland's main export is, is like agriculture, and it's mainly cattle and it's live cattle it's cattle on the hoof which makes sense to me if you see it in terms as a raw material in itself where the value is being added is in great britain not in ireland and that role doesn't change whatsoever after 1922 ireland stays part of the british sterling area and takes the decision to hold its currency at a one-to-one kind of parity with sterling and this is crazy because i mean the irish economy is trying to, should be trying to adapt to its nuclear situation as an independent state, but yet it doesn't. There is a class in Ireland that is making money from acting as kind of intermediaries. They're the ones who win the kind of civil war. They're the ones who, who, who set economic policy, more or less, in those kind of 10 years after independence. And it's a real case of let's just keep on carrying on this little game for ourselves. So what was the state of housing in Ireland at this time? Where you do get this idea of a cultural kind of resonance over housing is in terms of the land wars and in terms of of kind of agricultural farming ownership in rural areas farms are being bought out by the tenants and this is 
a result of the land wars of the 1880s. So that by 1922-24, you've got in County Mayo on the west coast of Ireland, you've got on paper 85% farm ownership. So it's quite high. Now, because people live on the farm, its housing is brought into that equation as well. But there's a difference with a farm and a house very kind of practical reasons as as well try raising cattle in a house and and like see what happens so in in urban areas home ownership in ireland is very very low for the reason because people can't afford them it's not part of the culture as 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 one woman said to me that in the 1960s she had moved into the kind of public housing i, I was interviewing her for an oral history kind of project and she said that uh, the idea of owning a house would be the same as owning a, an airplane and saying that if you know why would you rent a seat on an airplane why wouldn't you just buy your own kind of airplane it, it was that kind of fantastical to think that we could actually own our own houses in urban areas so where it gets kind of complicated in terms of trying to sell this idea of ireland being a property owning kind of nation the land war has been pushed into the urban housing uh, scene as well as if it's one and the same thing and it most certainly isn't i mean even as late as the, as, as the 1950s i think 74 75 percent of households in cork uh, city for example are all tenants are all renting now that changes in like 25 years, but even even as late as then, it's a urban renting class. And was there a lot of slums at the time? Uh, yes, the war. Ireland had some of the worst slums in the UK prior to partition and some of the worst slums in Europe after, after partition. There's very little expenditure on kind of social conditions in the 1920s and the early kind of 1930s in Ireland. Uh, this becomes a political issue as well and leads in no small part uh, to the rise of the Irish party. The uh, Fianna Fáil party would be vaguely a kind of a Peronist type party, businessman and worker type view of things. But they went for this and they actually saw that there was a kind of class tension here in Ireland, in rural areas, you know, between small farmers and the kind of cattle ranchers, as they were known. And then in kind of urban areas with the unskilled casual labouring class who were living in slums and the more kind of lower middle class, the kind of middle class kind of workers then afterwards. So in, in the 1930s is where you see some fairly significant expenditure in kind of social housing in the Irish state but it, it is that late and it is at that kind of level it is it's more kind of giving people housing than really kind of addressing what's the wider economic issues at, at, at play here that stays in place. So who was Ebenezer Howard and how did his ideas influence the thinking on housing at the time? Ebenezer uh, Howard was a British radical of the late kind of 19th early, early 20th century who had this idea of kind of garden cities he had this kind of vision of cities that would be kind of integrated with urban and kind of rural areas and would be places that cities aren't just where people work, it's where people live. And he really kind of ran with this kind of idea. His ideas have been kind of watered down and kind of mutated and have been blamed for the rise of like suburbs. And that's, it's quite unfair, unlike Howard. His vision, it was of more of a holistic kind of vision. But he had this idea of that people should have gardens, they should have kind of walkways, they should have nature and the urban areas all in one. And that people should live in the city and have factories on the outside instead of at the moment where it's factories on the inside or kind of workplaces in, in, in the inside. And then people live on the outside. It, it was to have this idea of, 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 of having cities as living entities. 
in terms of Ireland and in the UK, he does have an influence, as I said, in the rise of what's seen as kind of suburbia, where people would have a better quality of living on the edges of the city. When the first government came into power in Ireland, Cumann na Gael, or currently called Fine Gael, you, you quote them in the book as saying they tried to unleash the speculator as a solution to the problem of housing. Yes, I mean, uh, it's it, it was it was quite interesting kind of by coming across all these kind of files and kind of newspaper and reports where uh, Cumann na Gael very much had the idea that they would they spent almost as much money on housing as Fianna Fáil spend on like social housing, but they spend it in terms of kind of tax breaks and grants for kind of middle class housing. And that was the whole idea was that they said that the best way of addressing a housing problem is to give incentives to housing speculators and that will solve us for us. And of course it doesn't. After Fianna Fáil came to power and changed the focus onto social housing, this lasted until the 70s, until this policy was changed again. What happened when this policy, new policy change came in? What really kind of changes, not only now in Ireland, but across Europe and in the US as well, is that we really see the like move from a housing market, shall we say, to a mortgage market. People like today, I mean, I, I don't know anybody who has bought a house. The last person I know or people who bought a house is back in like 74. Most people I know, they buy a mortgage and then with the mortgage, they then buy a house. And a mortgage market is a different beast to a housing market. How much you charge for a mortgage or how much you sell in a mortgage, in theory, could be infinite. You know what I mean? There's no real kind of upper kind of bracket on it. There is a kind of physicality to how many houses are needed there's not the same kind of physical block as such to how much credit you can push onto somebody in order for, for, for them to then buy a house. So that's the real change in Ireland in the 1970s. Banks, for the first time, really started moving into the mortgage market around kind of 75. And by 81, 82, houses are, again, completely unaffordable in terms of an average wage. And this is seen as a, as a good thing because people are saying, well, if houses are good and affordable, if you do buy one, it's a great asset then to have. This kind of crazy idea of, of buying something you can't afford as a good thing for kind of wider kind of society really kind of takes hold. In what way was this kind of house-owning mentality an attack against, say, radical left politics or a fear of communism? Yes, I mean, this is one of the things that really kind of pushed in Ireland. I think it's best to like see Ireland as a, in kind of corpus terms. If there's a conceptual framework which really kind of underpins Ireland since kind of independence, it, it would be kind of Catholic social teaching. It's that rarum novarum idea of compassionate corporatist kind of capitalism. At the height of the Industrial Revolution in 1891, when Catholic workers were leaning toward the ideas of Marx and socialism to find their dignity and voice, Pope Leo XIII published a letter to the whole church on the topics of capital and labor. He called it Rerum Novarum, in English, of new things. In it, he rejected the popular ideas of both socialism and capitalism while defending labor unions and private property. He stated that society needed to be based on cooperation and not class conflict and unfair competition. The Pope taught that the role of the state is to promote social justice through the protection of basic human rights. He said, the economy must serve people, not the other way around. People are more important than things. 
Labor is more important than capital. So one of the ideas then in the 1920s and like 1930s, especially given just the role of the church, of, of the Catholic Church in the Irish state, is that one way of trying to dampen radical ideas is to make people property owners. If you do this, that will kind of dampen kind of radicalism and, and will make them more responsible. Now, this is impossible to achieve in the 1930s, 40s and 50s because there isn't the money or the jobs or the credit for this to like happen. By the, the 1960s, as credit comes into the Irish state, this becomes more kind of achievable. And by the 1970s and the 1980s, as this wave, a global wave of housing as an asset takes off, Ireland is then part of that then as well. But in the 1940s, 30s and, and 40s, it's really pushing this idea from the conservative kind of Catholic church-led kind of hierarchy in Ireland, both in terms of the church and in terms of politics as well. I mean, in, in the 1940s, you've got Irish Labour MPs, or like TDs, as they're called here, trying to out-Catholicise each other, trying to prove how much of a Catholic they are and how much they love God in the Dáil reports. And this is the kind of Labour movement. If your Labour movement is saying that, what chance the working class? There is an interesting quote in the book by the chairman of the Irish Permanent Building Society, in 1973, I think, where he was talking about how people could buy their own house in 10 years and then go <laughs> yeah. on to buy two or three extra houses <laughs> their working life. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was this idea of, like, even kind of uh, tracing how ideas are formed. It, like, it really is kind of fascinating that in 1971 and 1972, they're talking about this wonderful idea that why would you just buy one house in your life? Why not buy two? Or, like, you know, just sell one, you know, buy one before you have a family. Then when you're having a family, sell that one, then buy a bigger one. And then when your kids kind of move out, sell that and like downgrade. It'd be brilliant. It's the it's the three houses of man, you know? Seeing these ideas kind of formulate and being kind of pushed in, it starts in, to rise in prominence in media. It's, it's not just kind of media. It isn't pushed through by national state economic policy then as well, in terms of its tax laws, in terms of its own kind of laws then as well, really kind of pushing kind of this idea. And by uh, the 1990s, uh, there's another kind of change where instead of having the price of a house or the price of a mortgage should be in some way linked with your wage income, this is more or less kind of thrown out the window and becomes two wages in the 1990s, which means then, of course, that banks can uh, sell larger mortgages because now it's based on two wages kind of coming in. So first of all, in the 1970s, one house isn't enough for humanity. And then and then by the 1990s, uh, one wage is not enough for humanity to kind of house itself, you know? What was the Kenny report and why was this commissioned? In 1960, there's virtually no land speculation in the Irish state. And by 1970, you've got a senior government minister who's a millionaire because of land speculation, and this is Charlie High. So in those 10 years, there it is a change. Unfortunately, I didn't really kind of delve into the nuances of, of the change in that kind of indigenous capitalist class, if one of a better phrase. And I couldn't really kind of delve into it in, in, in the book, but it is definitely a change in their kind of profit-seeking kind of strategies 
in the 1960s. But by 1970, this is becoming a huge problem because there are land banks being kind of bought up on the edge of the city, of Dublin, of Cork, of Limerick, and Galway, of course, the kind of three, four cities in the Southern Irish day. These land banks are being bought up. Then they've been sat on until county councils are looking to buy them in order to build social housing. And then they charge a lake premium then for that land. So this is becoming a huge problem because social housing is is becoming a much rarer. It's becoming a much more kind of difficult to kind of pay for. And it's been seen that it's been driven at its base route by land bank speculation. So in 1972, there was a kind of report done into, well, you know, how could we have a more just, more fairer way of actually dealing with kind of land speculation? And the report that was led by a judge, Justice Kenny, uh, said that, well, what we should do is cap once agricultural land is sold on for kind of development and the most that someone can get for that land is the price of its agricultural land plus 25 percent and the reason being is that any value that development land has is not as when it's an empty field it's only because of the sewers and the water and the kind of roads and the infrastructure that has been paid for by the local taxpayers in order to make that land able to be kind of developed for kind of housing that's what gives it its kind of premium price not the farm or the kind of landowner and this is like every party said yes this is a brilliant idea and nobody has ever implemented it in like 40 years so much so that i mean even at the moment there was um, an entity it's only word really for it called nama that was set up to take um kind of bad loans off the books off banks and of the value of those loans i think around 20 to 24% of the value of money spent on those loans is for loans that was, was for kind of land, for kind of empty green fields that were being kind of speculated on. So even in terms of, of like 2008, at least 25% of the cost of like NAMA has been taken up with something that as early as like 1972 was seen as being like problematic. No discussion of Irish property then can be complete without a mention of Section 23 what was Section 23 then? Well, Section 23, again, it's a technique that's used in, 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 in a lot of cities in, in the US, in, in the UK, and in, in Europe as well, where it's seen as kind of regeneration, where you give tax breaks for kind of development in areas that are seen to warrant or merit a regeneration. It's a great way of actually seeing that this is where how kind of cultural kind of tropes formulate is in part true kind of state policy. This is the state policy being kind of put forward that is saying that we will encourage property kind of speculation and see it as a good thing and we'll call it regeneration. Now, it was it was supposed to be for urban inner city type areas. By the late 1990s, it's been used for what was known as the Shannon area, which is uh, basically the counties to which the Deer River Shannon, which is the largest river in Ireland, well, some of the counties that it like flows through, those counties were deemed to be areas fit for Section 23 type kind of policies. So much so that one of these counties was called County Leitrim, that has a population of around 29, 30,000. So the entire county has a population of a very small, in Ireland, it's a city in, in, in Europe, it's just a large town. And that was given this kind of a, a carte blanche to build, to kind of regenerate the entire county of Leitrim. And by the time that they finished, I think at the moment there's something like, it's in kind of double figures, the amount of vacant housing 
as a percentage of housing in Leitrim. They were building housing not to house people, but for the tax breaks that come with it. That's the kind of key to all of this. You build for the tax breaks. I wrote down, because the statistics in the book were so unbelievable to do with Leitrim, I wrote some of them down here. You say that from 1999 to 2006, six and a half thousand houses were built in Leitrim. Yeah. For 30,000 people. Yeah, and I think based on the census, I mean, households in like 2002 and like 2006, I think it maybe went up by maybe one and a half thousand. So you've got nearly four or five times more housing being built than actual household formation in the damn county. See, that's the key to it is that one of the problems, even even today, trying to talk about property, one of the conceptual walls uh, that we hit is that normal people, all of us see housing as, let's say, shelter. How finance sees housing is as, is as a tax shelter. That's a different thing. What you're building are vehicles for for tax avoidance. And that's what you build for. And this is one of the reasons why so much building is done that isn't needed. It's not needed in terms of what we would see it as being kind of needed for housing or isn't being utilised for that. At the moment, there's around 254,000 vacant housing units in Ireland. It's around 15% are vacant. And there's around 113,000 households on the housing waiting lists. So there's around one and a half to maybe two empty housing units for every household that needs housing. And they're not being utilised kind of whatsoever. Now, where they're being built, why they've been built, all that planning is out the window. The planning is around tax accountancy. Can we talk a bit about the actual tax breaks that were involved in this Section 23? What, what do they mean? Just off the kind of top of my head, if you borrowed to build, let's say, a hotel, your company, the loan is tax deductible. You would get a kind of tax write-off for the loan. You would then get a, a tax write-off on any income that came from the building for about, I think, maybe 10 years. But basically, you got a tax break not for the building, but for any aspect of, of your business. So let's say you're a bank and you've got a tax bill of like, of like 20 million. You could borrow 20 million, use that to invest in a hotel, and then you could bring those receipts. The Irish revenue will take those receipts as tax deductible and your tax bill is now zero. At the tail end of the so-called Celtic Tiger, by around 2007, 2008, there was a secondary market in these kind of tax breaks being traded in Dublin. It's covered in a book, Breakfast with Anglo, and they talk about how you would go hunting for investors for your kind of building. And what you're selling them is not the income that's coming from the building, but that if they invest in this building, they can then bring that receipt to revenue and get a tax write-off then for it. And that's what you're trading. So they get the building and they get to pay no tax. Exactly. So their tax bill is lowered and they have a kind of physical asset for it, you know. So in a wider kind of context, if you think about that, these are kind of tax breaks and, and tax breaks are never neutral. What this meant was that Ireland, it was spending tax revenue. How it was doing it, but it was by giving kind of tax breaks. But it was spending billions every year in building hotels instead of building infrastructure, schools, hospitals. It, the, the money went into commercial property and into hotels and, and into golf courses. There's, at the last count, now NAMA that has the bulk of the bad loans, and not all of them by any means, but it's a fairly opaque 
entity. But from what we can work out, there's around 121 hotels on the books of NAMA, and I think 16, 17 kind of golf courses. That was Ireland's infrastructural expenditure over those kind of 10, 12 years. That's what we built during the kind of boom years. We built hotels and golf courses with taxpayers' money. Now, it's done through a kind of round-robin way, but ultimately, because they are tax breaks, that was with taxpayers' money. I travel up to Dublin Airport via Ashburn. I'm from County Mead. And on the bypass for Ashburn, there is a Holiday Inn Hotel. Now, for, 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 for people who, who don't know where Ashburn is, it's like a, you know, a commuter town on the outskirts of Dublin. So on a roundabout on a bypass, there is a Holiday Inn Hotel. It's the most unbelievable place I've ever seen a hotel built in my entire life. It's like that, you know, that kind of story of like London Bridge and like Arizona, isn't it? I mean, it's just like it's it's the last place where you expect a hotel. So, oh, yeah. where you where we spend our 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 holidays? Well, this is roundabout in in Ashbourne that, that I think we should really go check out there, Glenis. You know, it's beyond belief. Every time I drive past it, I I laugh. It's just beyond belief, and it's very large. I reckon I was looking at it, I was trying to calculate how many bedrooms is. I reckon it's about 60, 60 bedrooms. Oh, I'm telling you, I, I mean, like... I can't I, imagine them having two people in it a night. Even even if Ireland gave, at this moment, gave tax breaks for people to make post-apocalyptic zombie movies in Ireland, at least we have the infrastructure to make those type of movies, you know what I mean? Because it's all there, you know? Just on the point there is that one of the, and like, I have to say hats off to them for how they've done this, but what broke the banks in Ireland was not residential property. It was kind of commercial property and this kind of scheme of tax breaks for commercial property. That's what broke Ireland. But they've changed that narrative into it was people buying houses. And I, I have to go hats off to them because how you can change the story of something that people have lived through and convince them that what they know happened is wrong is quite an achievement. But that's what broke them. Property in Ireland did not blow up in 2008. That's not what happened. There was not a property bubble bursting, or like a residential one, in Ireland in 2008. What happened in 2008 was that interbank lending froze up, and that exposed all the cracks in the business model of banks like Anglo-Irish and Irish Nationwide. That's what caused problems. The residential property bubble is bursting now, if you know what I mean. This is, it's now since like 2010. The secondary bubble burst. Yeah, and that's the residential one. That's happening now. That was not kind of 2008. But they changed it around as, as if it was all us just buying houses. I said, no, it isn't. That's happening now. And there's been no bailout there for any of that. As we know, because any time it's mentioned for any kind of uh, you know, homeowners, it's like, no, 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 no. We can't do that. It, it, it would spook all the markets. But apparently, bailing now, Ashbourne roundabout hotels is, is the best thing to do. Even that kind of narrative that when we talk about property really is that it's about kind of commercial property. It's about that whole kind of game, how that was being run. That's where the kind of real story is in Ireland. And it's, it's, it's interesting reading in like other kind of reports, official reports from the BIS and even from the UK-based inquiry into the banking crisis. When they talk about Anglo-Irish Bank, they really just go, this was the worst bank in Europe. What the hell was going on? And I think what's missing from that is that I think Anglo-Irish Bank makes sense. And the bailout for me makes sense. And this is the key kind of argument in the book. When you see Ireland in class terms, and I, I don't mean social class, I mean economic class terms. And when you see how their kind of business property kind of strategies in motion, bailing out Anglo made sense because 
that's where that class was really kind of focused in on. We have yet to see anything in the books in Laganglo. We have yet to see anything about how they really kind of operate it. That's all been kept in-house. They are locked down. There's a chance of some of those books being opened uh, last year with the IBRC. And the IBRC is, is what Anglo you know, became when it was merged with Irish Nationwide. And they made that entire bank disappear in 12 hours. It was, it was incredible. Did you see it at all? I did, yeah, I did. Watching you know, a bloodless coup d'etat on the TV stations where they're just ramming through I mean, this, I mean, this is where it gets almost embarrassing about being Irish because it's, it's, it's where all those cliches about Irish people just come true. They kept the bar open in the doll and then had them vote on it after they'd gotten jarred up at like half two, three in the morning. I was going, this is far the Ted stuff. But there was a chance of something happening. And yeah, I've done kind of more research on it. But they got so spooked that they made an entire bank disappear in 12 hours. It was incredible. This is the Statue of Liberty. Tonight, the illusion of the century. David Copperfield will attempt to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. Good evening, I'm David Copperfield. And tonight we're here on Liberty Island. People come to this island by boat and I've made the trip quite frequently during this past year, getting ready for tonight. A couple of weeks ago when I was on the boat, a young sightseer about seven years old came up to me and said, are you David? He said he saw me make the car disappear. And then he said he saw me make the jet plane disappear. I thanked him and I watched as he looked up at the Statue of Liberty, then at me, then back to the statue, then back to me. Finally, he looked me right in the eye and said, are you thinking what I think you're thinking? Well, that's what I was thinking, all right. And tonight, he and I and you are going to find out if it can be done. Can the Statue of Liberty really disappear? What we do know is that in terms of NAMA, and NAMA is where the bulk of these kind of bad commercial property loans ended up, we do know that the bulk of those loans, they relate to around 150 companies stroke people. So that's it. So what we're talking about is the entire resources of a nation state being used to basically help 150 well-connected people. In 2008, Ireland launched a bank bailout whereby they guaranteed all deposits and the majority of bondholders for the banks. Why was this done, do you think? It was done, and they were quite explicit as to why this was done. And again, this has been dropped from the narrative ever since. But he did it to allow... Anglo-Irish and Irish nationwide access to the interbank lending markets. They were being kind of frozen out of that and they said that if we get a, a state guarantee, we can go into the overnight lending markets and actually get loans at rates that will keep us going. That was it. And it blew up. It blew up in their, in, in, well, in our faces. But they were quite explicit. There's an article by Simon Carswell of the Irish Times, I think on the 2nd or the 3rd of October, where he just lays it out. He lays it out in very clear prose exactly what um, had happened. This is all about access to the interbank lending markets that had frozen up, well, had been freezing up, but went absolutely, you know, in the shutdown mode after the Lehman Brothers kind of fell. But once they gave that kind of guarantee, Ireland's state was now merged with the interbank lending markets. How I try to explain is that it's a bit like if you're changing at the wheel of a car and the jack slips. 
and you jump in and you grab the car, you try and hold up the car while the wheel's been changed. And everyone else says, you really shouldn't have done that. But now that you're there, you're not moving. And that's kind of what happened then with Ireland was that, I mean, on the 3rd of October, Trichet, who was head of the ECB at the time, wrote a letter to Brian Lenahan, the Irish Minister for Finance. Again, this is public, it's, it's open access, saying to him, do you realise that you have potentially exposed the Irish state to liabilities it cannot possibly afford to cover? It just cannot you know, cover. You should really kind of think about this. But by 2010, it's increasingly clear that Ireland cannot cover the guarantee that it has it, it has given out, and that's when the ECB and and the truck move in. That's when it becomes a case of when now we're taking over. But in 2008, Indigenous Irish class trying to be smart and blown up in, in well in, in their and and their faces. But by 2010. Because Ireland had given that guarantee, and that guarantee had then merged with the kind of interbank lending market, you know, Ireland's fate then becomes intertwined then with the fate of that market. So Ireland becomes itself too big to fail. Is it possible? This is what you're saying. That the official line is is that the government and the ministers they mistook a solvency crisis for a liquidity crisis. So access to short-term funds. Did they actually think that things weren't bust? When I looked at it at, at happening at the time. I said, God, they can't honestly believe that this is just a lack of liquidity. Surely they must believe it's insolvent. And we know from the Anglo tapes that that is what they thought, that they knew that this was not a, a liquidity problem. So in effect, they got the government to enact legislation, even though they knew it wouldn't work. Rightly or like wrongly, but this is where I'm going to come from on this, is that I see this as a class bailing itself out. It's, it's not a case of it's the government and then it's Anglo. This is the same class. They happen to be in government and in Anglo then as well. And their fortunes, there's no contradiction there. Where the kind of contradiction or conflict is, is with that class and us. When the bailout happens then, in what sense do Anglo or the Irish government, who are in bed with all the developers to the hilt, in, in what sense do they think through their action there that they're actually bailing themselves out? In what sense are they getting rescued? What would be the alternative for them that would be worse than what actually happened? Well, uh, it, what would have happened is that if Anglo had, had called Stu on the 30th of September, if it didn't make these calls, it was going to be seen as, as a bankrupt bank. I think their worst case scenario is external auditors coming into that bank and going through those books. Uh, I think that's what would have scared them. Because how that bank was run, that's the real kind of issue here. Who was getting loans? How do we get loans? Uh, we know from NAMA that there were loans that were transferred over to NAMA for which there is no paperwork. We know this because they said it in their first annual report. So we've already got a situation where there are illegal loans in NAMA. So if, if that's what they kind of and, and let slip in their, in their annual kind of report, what else has been going on in that? There are enough glimpses there, flashes of, of the kind of class in operation that I think kind of tells us that the last thing I think they would want is somebody who's, who's not in the club coming in and going through those books and bankrupting people and saying, you know what, you cannot afford us anymore, so now we have to kind of do a deal here. You would have seen a lot of those 150 people probably made bankrupt, which would have been awful for them, but the alternative was bankrupting an entire country. And they took that option. For them, that was a good move. 
instead of like bankrupting those 150 people or, or 800 people, they bankrupted an entire state and they, and they sleep well at night having made that decision. So I don't think that, you know, we owe them anything in, in terms of giving them any kind of benefit of the day. They were given that choice and that's the choice they made. Well, in fact, they probably avoided a lot of jail time. Well, yeah, and they will. I mean, this is, I mean, it's like we're, what, f- five, six years into this? There have been more books written about this crisis than people actually prosecuted for it. This is where we get into power and actually looking at power in Ireland and how power operates in this country. And again, it's class power, economic class, not kind of social class, but nevertheless power, you know. In terms of what the impact was for the Irish economy, I was wondering if you could talk about NAMA, where all the bad loans were put, and the banks. It's hard to contextualise maybe for American and UK viewers what the actual impact per household is. How devastating was this for the economy? Well, I mean, at the cost of, of the bailout, I think there's nothing in terms of scale in the Eurozone. In, in terms of the bank bailout, it comes close to $100 billion when you put it all together. That's the bailout, the recapitations, and NAMA, the kind of promissory notes. And when you put all that together, it's around 95 billion. Now, the size of Ireland's kind of GDP is around, what, 140 billion? So you're talking about a bailout that has cost around 60, 70% of the GDP. This is for, and like, that's not for investment. So all that money is being extracted. And what is it doing then for us? I mean, this is, I mean, this is the dampener that's been put onto the Irish economy as a result of it. We're working now, a large part of it, to pay back the loans of those 150 people. Well, that's a very depressing thought. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, and, and, and that's why I've stopped, you know, kind of watching Irish news or kind of reading Irish newspapers, because they just tell lies. I mean, it's just all the stuff about, no, it was you buying a house in Ashbourne. No, it wasn't. It was those hotels being built in, in Ashbourne, you know. But it's the gig. I mean, you know, I mean, this is what we're kind of facing. Maybe it's just, I mean, I've, I will put my hands up here. Maybe it is just me that I see it in such kind of stark terms. But that's how I see it. I see it as these are the people who are bailed out. It doesn't happen overnight. Having that kind of power doesn't happen overnight. It takes decades. But once it's there, it comes into play in times of like crisis. Now, for us as analysts that's one of the reasons why times of crisis from a research kind of point of view are really important because power has to drop its shield it has to reveal itself so we should take advantage and say well listen this is telling us something here about how power operates in this state and we should use that to try and kind of build upon that for the next one you know my hope for the book always was that it would be more of a kind of a a kind of an activist kind of a teaching tool, if you know what I mean, that it, it, it would try to inform progressives and kind of leftists to hopefully help them in their struggles and say, well, let's keep our focus here on where power lies, because I mean, that's what we should kind of focus in on. And in those circles, it, it has been kind of well received. I, I, I've been quite kind of taken back by it. It's been taken well from all shades, you know, so I'm, I'm fairly happy, you know. Even in kind of progressive circles in Ireland, there's still that, idea that it was just greedy bankers as if bankers are ever and anything but greedy it's this kind of personalization of it of of it so you know it's an uphill struggle but i do think it has something to bring to the table and i do hope that it brings some kind of clarity to an area that is full of noise you know well connor thanks very much for coming on the show today uh, cheers for the offer tom it's brilliant you know 
Since talking to Connor a few days ago, I did a little research on the Ashburn Roundabout Hotel. Turns out, it used to be a Marriott Hotel, not a Holiday Inn like I thought, and has now renamed itself somewhat odd title of the Pillow Hotel. Not only that, but it doesn't have 60 bedrooms like I guesstimated, but a mind-boggling 146 rooms. The world truly is in a terrible state of chassis. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sunra and his orchestra, and a clip from the film for the others, discussing Rerum Novarum, mashed up with Bernard Herrmann's score for the Hitchcock film Vertigo. You also heard David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear, and you are now listening to Quincy Jones's version of the Marvin Gaye classic What's Going On. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. <laughs>